0: the podcast where we talk about two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings and other times giving ourselves the opportunity to wash the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I am your host, Carlos Cooper, and with me as always...
1: Joe Hilliard. And Dave Gurney.
0: And we are here to do, you guessed it, drink beer and talk about movies. Really changing it up this week. Um, But... It's a slightly special week compared to most because the beer, which we're going to get straight into, we've, we've learned from our mistakes that we should not get too bogged down before moistening our glasses. So we're going to get straight into it. And this week we have a beer that was brought down to us. It was literally driven from Tennessee all the way down to Corpus Christi, Texas, where we are, and uh, was gifted to us by a listener. Very long time friend of mine. Um, Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I've probably known this guy for like almost 15 years now. I met him my freshman year of high school um, when I moved back to Corpus from the Shadowlands, which we will not discuss. But uh, my friend Justin, um, my future podiatrist, uh, and he brought us a beer. It is from a brewery in Nashville called Bearded Iris. Now, this is 6%. Um, We all have, thanks to him, he was uh, gracious enough to make sure that we all had our own can. Um, And it is uh, described as a home-style IPA, soft, juicy, brewed with mosaic hops. I don't know if you guys have inspected the can. This is the first time I'm noticing this. But the can on the bottom next to the canning date says, We are all the bearded lady.
2: Yeah, lovely. I like that's uh, a great so sentiment. I, I like we're, that.
0: We're gonna. Cr- this is one of two beers that he brought us. I don't know if we are gonna do the second on the podcast. He uh, um, gave me some. Fe- he sampled before he gave them to me. Gave me some feedback on each and what we should do and all that kind of thing. Um, but I'm excited uh, to try this. I love a mosaic hop IPA, and uh, you know it's always nice to have a little listener, uh, contribution. And this is also, we have had a beer from Tennessee, but it was a collaboration. Um, you'll remember definitive brewing saved by the buoyancy of sour sop. Great. Mitch that was, reference. Fantastic that, beer.
1: That was, that was one of our favorite beers from, uh, 2019 that we enjoyed on the show. Yeah, it did. A 100% made my
0: top five that year, I believe. And, mm-hmm. Um, but th- so this is our, but this is our first beer that is solely, a Tennessee brewery. brewery. Um, no collabs. No, this is a brewery based in Nashville, and so now we cannot just um, slightly check it off the list, but we can definitively say we have been to Tennessee.
2: This is just—it smells incredible. I just pouring it into my glass, the room like filled up with this, <laughs> this, this, this citrusy hop aroma. I mean, I, I'm. This is like. Uh, doing double duty. This is an air freshener Ooh, and
1: my god. You're right. You're 100% <laughs> right. That's crazy. A, ra- a rainbow filled your room.
0: I I am it's it's hitting me front and center on the nose as well. Mm, um, very
1: gra- very grassy on the nose. I yeah. think I'm going to I'm going to think I'm going to like this very much.
0: Yeah, I mean if I mean I I have yet to take a sip, but if just the smell is any indicator, I think that this is going to be Um, a great first half of the episode
1: well last week uh you gave me the opportunity during our high fidelity talk to give the top five episodes i'd like to see us do while we're all staying at home and number one on my list was hitchcock i don't know if i made a good case or if we we did put it out there on our facebook page and a lot of people wanted to see it Many people wanted to see a Kurosawa episode, but we went with the Hitchcock, and I'm very very excited. The first half of the episode, we're going to talk about his 1954 masterpiece, if I may, Rear Window.
0: Yeah, that's true. Um we did get a lot of people saying let's do, that we should do the Hitchcock. Um I don't have we done any Hitchcock at all? We have not. I didn't think so. Uh no. so this is, what, episode 85 or 86 or something like that, so that's, I mean, we almost made it to triple digits without touching one of the greatest American filmmakers to ever, to ever do it, which is insane, but we're here now, finally, long overdue.
2: Though originally a British filmmaker, let's just be, the, the, he he did make the move to Hollywood, but but he did start his career uh, in the UK.
0: Oh, okay, shows how much I know about Hitchcock.
2: Well, just there, the, the, you know, the, got to set the stage.
0: Yeah, um, kind of. Uh, you know, I I was thinking about this when we were watching the two movies. Uh, that we're going to talk about this episode because for me, when I think Hitchcock, yes, I do think of these movies, but they're not like my number one go to like Hitchcock film. And I don't remember how I was introduced to him. I, It's kind of one of those things like like um like prince like he just always existed for me you know like he was just always a a figure in the world that you knew about he's kind of the pioneer of a director appearing in his own films like the cameo of the director or whatever which is one of the things i remember the most yeah he he about always is...
1: yeah he always sneaks into those uh movies you have to sometimes blink or you'll miss him oh yeah I didn't
0: catch them in either of the movies we watched today. Honestly, I wasn't looking, but
1: I, I, I've seen them both many, many times. So I knew when to look, but, um, the, the film and David, do you want to take a crack at a quick plot synopsis? Sure. Yeah. Um, we're starting
2: with Rear Window here, which of the two films that we're looking at. This is the, the earlier. So uh, as Joe said earlier, 1954, this is uh, Jimmy Stewart playing uh, a character who who uh, is recuperating. He goes, His last name is Jeffries. He goes by Jeff. Um, he's recuperating from an accident that he's had in his profession as a photographer. Um, for various magazines and uh, and news outlets. And uh, while he's, re- you know, recovering from this broken leg, he's cooped up in his apartment and there's a window out onto this kind of back area courtyard where some apartment buildings kind of adjoin. And he- he's got this wonderful display of all his neighbors that he's entertaining himself with, right? Um, being the mid-50s, television wasn't quite as pervasive. Um, we can almost think of this as-, as a quarantine-themed film, in a sense, where he's stuck in isolation and looking for entertainment and he finds it in his backyard and in that ends up stumbling upon what he thinks may be a murder that has unfolded and thinks he may have certain evidence enlists his uh, I guess we'd call her a girlfriend um, his lady friend and uh, who, who is uh, played by Grace Kelly, Lisa Fremont is, is the character's name, as mm. well as his uh, nurse who comes to visit, uh, and, and her name is Stella. So anyway, the, the three of them kind of end up coming together to try to investigate this thing. He also pulls in a detective, and, and it's, it's kind of a murder mystery of a film. Not exactly a whodunit, but more a can we prove that something actually happened all unfolding in the back of the film which makes it in the back of his yard which makes it sound somewhat conventional and yet I think visually when you see the film and how it's portrayed and what that basic concept does in terms of dictating the visuals of the film or at least the direction that uh, Hitchcock took them it's really a unique movie watching experience.
1: It is for several reasons, and that is, is the Hitchcock begins the film limiting himself as a filmmaker, one might think, because, because the main character has a broken leg and is confined to either a wheelchair, the bed, or his come-to-my-house-nurse's massage table. He's not going to be able to move around. We're not going to follow this guy all over town. He's stuck in his house of his house of course looks out over a courtyard of shared living space where he and the viewer are allowed to look inside the windows and down on the fl- the courtyard Oh, Aislinn just showed up. She said, oh, free beer. Okay, I'm going to have some. This one's from Tennessee, love. She's
0: she's wearing a fantastic jumpsuit. uh, Yes. And sunglasses inside, which I greatly respect.
1: (laughs) Carlos, what an apropos statement. You're viewing inside my house through this uh, Skype mechanism, and you can peek and look and see what people are wearing and see what people are up to. That's exactly what Jeffries, Jeff, does with the bulk of his time with his binoculars and other tools of being a professional photographer, he's looking in the windows, becoming more and more obsessed with what we he is seeing and what we, the viewer, get to see through his point of view. So, yeah, I think w- what you landed on
2: there, Joe, is, is exactly right, in that this film is so unique in that it ties us so closely to the Jeffreys character. Um, and we, as viewers in the cinema are often in that kind of position where we're looking into this world, but it can't necessarily look back at us. And yet we're kind of confined or, you know, to whatever perspective we're given based on where we can you know, we can't move throughout that world um, will willingly ourselves or willfully ourselves. We're kind of rooted to wherever the camera's gonna take us. And in this case it's him as, you know, this man confined to his wheelchair looking out the window at what's going on. And so, you know, we're aligned with this main character in a way in terms of point of view that very rarely happens in film and which is why I think a lot of people rightfully so point to this film as one of those that actually is making a statement about the movie watching experience itself but in a very sly way that I don't think hits people over the head and is like oh I'm gonna make commentary on you as a viewer like you can watch this and be entertained by it just enjoy what it is and never think, oh, this is a film that's trying to get me to reflect on what it's like to be a voyeur, to be looking in on people's lives. Um,
1: and, and yet that's what it does. And you've got um, – he doesn't know these people he's looking at, but he can begin to create a personality and a character for them. So the beautiful woman over there right across the way that tends to do aerobic activity in her apartment scantily clad is Miss Torso. And, uh, the lady that's living by herself and is clearly uh, pining for a a mate or a suitor is Miss Lonely Heart. And it goes on and on the, the gentleman who's a, a piano player trying to craft a piece of music. That's where Hitchcock, by the way, makes his, um, his, uh, appearance in the film as a man inside that, apartment so we're beginning to just kind of enjoy the 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 view of this guy's window rear window
2: Fun fact here. uh, Before we jump off it, you mentioned the songwriter character, and I don't know if people will know this bit of trivia, but that is actually Ross Bagdasarian, who came to be known a little bit later, more well uh, by his stage name David Seville. He was the guy who created the Chipmunks and Calvin and the Chipmunks, and did all that stuff. So, um, he's he's an interesting guy, and you know, and he was an actor. He was a singer-songwriter himself, uh, but you know, this is one of his movie roles that uh, he. He's probably best known for it, even though he's not really known in the same way as he, as he was with uh, being David Sedell. So, so a little bit of a tangent. Carlos, I, I feel like Joe and I are dominating here. I want to hear what, what you have to think about this one. Was Rear Window, was this your first time seeing it? Had, is this one that you'd seen many times? I don't know. Um,
0: you know, there's probably only one Hitchcock film that I've seen many times, and it's none of the ones we're talking about today. Um, May I guess? Yes. Heiko. No. Incorrect. Ah okay i've seen that maybe twice at most um what was that gesture
1: crop duster north by northwest
0: no wrong again no, i
1: wouldn't i would not have guessed that one okay well what is it well let's
0: play pl- well now, now now i want you guys to figure it out
1: <laughs> yeah i want to play the game okay hold on a, mo- a hitchcock movie that someone who's a little bit younger david than you and i would have seen over and over psycho leaps to mind because i feel like that's a slumber party uh, a sleepover movie For that sure. folks folks would want to to, to see. Uh. mine is one
0: that um, captured my attention, imagination, however you like want to describe it independently of really any kind of peer. If you say, if you say
1: frenzy if you say frenzy, I'm gonna be very impressed. No, I, I don't know David, I, I give up. It's not that one.
2: Yeah, I mean, I really don't know where to go, honestly. I mean, I I would have said Vertigo, but I feel like, oh, I've just spilled the beans. We're we're looking at that <laughs> in the second half. I feel like you'd be you'd be indicating it was a film that we had watched for today. No. But I, um, you know, aside it's, from that,
0: it's something that plays on um, the idea that something that is very commonplace and taken for granted in our everyday lives could turn on us and be if you, menacing. If you
1: say if you say high anxiety, I'm going to call you a cheater. No.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the Mel Brooks movie. <laughs>
2: Yeah,
0: <laughs> no, it's not that. It's it's the birds. The birds oh, is oh, come on. Geez. Yeah, I, I now I
2: feel stupid, but yeah, that's yeah. my
0: that's my favorite Hitchcock movie and the one I've seen the most. Um, oh, that's
1: a great one. I did that see it little, put first. it on the list.
0: Yeah, I did see this one uh, for the first time at the Draft House um, for uh, when they were. Um, uh, it was probably the first, uh, maybe year, maybe in this, maybe it was a little bit into the second year that we had a draft house here in town, uh, and they were pretty regularly doing the horror movie Monday uh, thing, and I went and saw it, um, and I really liked it. I for me, so much of like my enjoyment of this film is gonna like always be tied back to Disturbia. Uh, and the Shia LaBeouf movie Which I love um, Like a lot Like really love that movie And think it's like so underrated And my And again, you know Part of that connection is like I saw that movie Cause like you know This kid that was in this Disney show That I watched all the time Is now in this horror movie And I you know we've talked about Shia LaBeouf a lot on the show, especially my fondness for him. But I think part of it is that I was kind of aging with him and his career. And as he like broke into like more adult content territory, like elevated kind of stuff, I was like right there with him, like starting to watch my, like go to PG 13 movies by myself with my friends at the time. And so Disturbia is like in that kind of time period of my life. And I love that movie so much. And I was honestly surprised that i liked it as much as i did and i remember like talking to my mom about it and being like oh this movie disturbia it's actually a lot better than it probably has any right to be like it's about this and this and this and like you know i thought it might be kind of cheesy but it wasn't it was actually really good and she was like oh that sounds exactly like rear window and i was was, you you know what are you talking about and and so it's a very clear remake homage whatever of rear window and so you know, by the time I saw that, like I had so much emotional attachment to the remake of it that part of it is like, oh, I see where all this stuff came from, like all these ideas from this film that I saw first that I like a lot. But there is, Which is a lot in its own right that Rear Window does really, really well, especially considering the context and the time period of its release.
1: Which takes into account why you'd study Hitchcock in film school, and that's because many of the elements of filmmaking, the filmmaking, the storytelling via filmmaking, Hitchcock is inventing in in this most fruitful time of his career. We'll talk about that in the second half, but... um, there are, there are a dozen remakes of Rear Window uh, in, in one way or the other. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see genera- generationally, Carlos, that you can then go back to the source material here.
0: Yeah, and I mean, um, if for, for, for anybody that's listened uh, to this podcast, and even a semi-regular basis, any time that we talk about a thriller or any film that relies heavily on suspense... Most recently, I can think of uh, The Invisible Man. But I, I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, Like one of the things that Alfred Hitchcock has given to like, the lexicon of filmmaking is that suspense is created by the audience knowing something that the characters on screen do not. And that alone is a big enough impact on the history of filmmaking for him to be cemented as... Like an all, like a perennial, like all star of filmmaking.
1: But David. I would argue, but I would argue, and then David, to you, I would argue that you don't have that in Rear Window, and that's what makes it a little bit unique. Is that we only know what Jeffrey knows. We only know, and we, it is a Hitchcock movie. There is a murder mystery. Uh, one of the characters across the way that he's looking at, uh, played by, I'm drawing a blank for a reason that I cannot describe. Help me. Raymond Burr, thank you, has maybe, maybe, probably not, but maybe killed his wife in the isolation of his home, but in clear view, perhaps, of our main character. And here's where the suspense, here's where the Hitchcock really comes in. Yeah, I mean, it's I, he was billed already
2: as the master of suspense by the time right. this film was coming out, right? I mean, like this is this is what he was known for popularly. Like the audiences knew to seek out his films in part because they were Hitchcock films, and they knew that when they went to the theater that there was going to be that sort of pulse pounding, uh, you know, the 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 nooses tightening kind of feel to these films. Uh, that as they unfold. You're right, Joe. In some sense, this film aligns us so closely with one character uh, that you know we're getting almost no information that really tells us definitively as an audience much more than Jeffreys knows. But that said... It still unfolds in a way where you know a lot of the stuff that we're kind of assuming along with him, but can't quite be confirmed. It's it's done just right so that there's that perfect kind of balance, or a a pretty close to perfect kind of balance when it comes to sort of ratcheting up that suspense, where it's like, oh, I'm pretty sure this isn't a good situation for them to be in. You see it get go further and further and further until it's really kind of
1: out of control, and then and then there really are some desperate situations where there are really. I mean, even to this day, does the movie hold up? Of course it does. Of course, you know you're watching a 1954 movie. Of course, you know that some of the special effects, I'm thinking of Jeffrey's falling down to the ground in that shot, don't quite hold up, but you forgive them because you know that they were cutting-edge special effects when the film was released. You, 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 I just love this movie so much. I'm so glad that we picked this one, and I'm so glad that it gave me an occasion to watch it with my entire family, Uh, the kids seeing it for the very first time, and really, in I'm not even saying tolerating this 1950s stuff, but really, really enjoying.
0: Yeah, I mean, one thing that I like notice in at least this era of Hitchcock, like you know, the 50s. Um, in the technicolor stuff is that there is just such a specific look of those technicolor Mm -hmm. films you know and it just has a certain charm to it and it has a certain kind of nostalgia to the way everything looks like the way that certain colors pop the way that like it it just has such a specific feel and vibe to it and like The costuming, which probably at the time nobody really considered because that was probably just like closer to how people dressed. Um, But it just has this nostalgia.
1: I would imagine that the elements of what Hitchcock has become as an historical figure, what the themes that his films tend to talk about, we can heavily get into in the second half of this film. This film puts front and center the concept, David, you used the word earlier, voyeurism. Um, th- relationships and where women are in those relationships. I think that in this day and age, Hitchcock sometimes even gets criticism for that. The blonde actress, and I- I'm gonna say it right now, there may be no more beautiful a screen actress than Grace Kelly. I mean i I'll put her up against anyone if we're if that's the mer- uh, if that's the values that we're going after, she's just beautiful. But then also, the notion of mismatched couples that Jeffrey says throughout the film, she's too perfect. She requires things in a life, glamor fashion, uh, five-star meals that I am just not interested in because I'm a guy that can just throw some things in a backpack and live in Egypt or Africa for a month. But then you begin to see that even in the notion that they're not perfectly matched that they make one another happy. And the end scene in this film, the punchline of their relationship, when he takes a nap, she goes from reading a common book and picking up the Vogue magazine or Glamour magazine, whatever it was, going back to our roots, being mismatched but happy with one another, providing something for one another. And he learns that through. He learns that she can be the woman that he needs by really putting her into a very dangerous situation. One of the most suspenseful parts of the movie is when she is in the potential murderer's apartment and can't escape. There's so much... I love this movie so much.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of really great moments to it. Now, you know, as I have stated earlier, some of my favorite things about this movie are things that don't necessarily have to do with this movie. Like, as I stated earlier, uh, you know, the remake starring Shiloh LaBeouf, Disturbia being one of my favorites, but also just, like, the idea of Grace Kelly is so... Like she's such a like looming figure of classic Hollywood and then mm-hmm. like going on to be like the princess of Monaco and having like strange ties to this cult, uh, like the order of the solar temple or whatever. And just like the, just bizarre stuff surrounding her life. Like, I mean, there's, uh, there's just like a, like a gold mine of conspiracy around her as like a person, uh, it's I mean it's just it's all just like fascinating to think about and like it's really hard for me to just look at it and be like this is just an actress on a screen I'm like no that's the person that like you know might have helped like fund this like weird cult that like you know I don't know like it's just a whole thing and um (laughs) uh, there's but that's just part of old Hollywood
1: you know it is there was so much weird stuff going on at the time yeah, if yeah. you have if you have a chance, the YouTube the set that they made, the, the the entire thing was shot on a studio set. That set took six months to six weeks to build. Had a irrigation system and a drainage system so that it could be shot exactly the way that it was wanted. There's so much film school in this movie. Speaking of film school, David, That's a good segue <laughs> that I wasn't ready for, but yeah, no. I, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I had a segue from
2: the last one that I was actually going to. Anyway, all right. Uh, <laughs> Colts. I know you wanted to talk about Colts. Yeah, you well, wanted to talk about Grace say, Kelly's not, position in I had not dug into Grace Kelly's background. That is not stuff that I, that I knew of. So I, that that's that's news to me. Thank you, Carlos, for sharing that. Um, I'll send you a um, link. Okay. All right. I'll I'll have to look at that. Um, I did knew I did know the Princess of Monaco stuff, but the, but the uh, not, not so much about the cult. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think this film is is great for a lot of reasons. I think that um, you know as Joe's already made mention of thematically, the kinds of ideas that were being worked on here weren't all that dissimilar from others in earlier Hitchcock films, and yet I think there is kind of a ratcheting up of a certain kind of approach to looking at male-female relationships that, in the second half of this episode, I think we're going to see get just amplified to to an extent where it's almost ear-piercing. Uh, well, and 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 I look forward to talking talking about that as as we kind of create the through line through the episode. But I, but I think that's probably an indicator that it's a good time for us to revisit the beer that we've had in our glass. Uh, this this half of the episode, and I know we'll be talking about uh, a lot of these same themes, but not necessarily flavor wise because we're gonna be switching gears more there. With this IPA I- I'm just I'm loving it. I mean, this is really a wonderful, wonderful, um, easy to drink,, uh, you know, it, it, 16 ounces of it is not a chore at all. Although I I do wish that I maybe had longer to, to sit with it because I think it's it's even getting better almost as it warms up. There there's Ooh. something about um, and that's not always the case with IPAs for me. Rarely. Uh, yeah, but but i really this is just and I've had some bearded divers, so This isn't and they are a, a pretty. I mean, if you're going to talk about Nashville Nashville breweries. They are the one I think that that most people hold in the highest esteem, and it's for good reason. They know what they're doing.
0: I agree. I mean, I, I think that um, I think Justin really knocked it out of the park with this one. I know that um, he had uh, he had texted me asking if we had had any Tennessee breweries. At which point, I had consulted the two of you, and um, Joe had indicated that we had only had that collaboration. Uh, and so I thought it would be a good opportunity to really dive headfirst into the state, and so I told him no. Um, we hadn't had any proper Tennessee beer yet, and he um, very um, like smartly, you know, Googled where is the bet where can I buy the best craft beer found like, you know, a, a good craft beer emporium to go to in Nashville. Um, he, uh, unfortunately he is, you know, as I said, he's my future podiatrist. Uh, he's in medical school right now and was, uh, working at a hospital in Scranton, Pennsylvania, um, as a student cause he's like still, he hasn't, uh, gone to residency yet. Um, but as we all know, everything's crazy. Like, Non-essential people are being cut, and students happen to be non-essential in these situations. And so he was let go from the hospital in Scranton and had to drive home, uh, which I imagine is quite a trek. I know, David, you've made a similar drive in the past. I have never quite driven that far before. Um, But lucky for us, as he was coming back, he, uh, he thought about us in the process, picked this up. Dropped it off on my porch, uh and I personally am enjoying this a great deal i i I wish that I had two or three more cans of it sitting around so that I could you know have it you again.
1: did you did you gave them to us <laughs> yes, that's
0: right i like I said at the top of the top of the episode, Justin had the foresight to you know say I'm gonna get four packs, six packs, and make sure that I have at least three to give to carlos when i drop him off so that they can do it on the show and thank god for him having that foresight that we were able to do this because you know really fantastic beer um i mean for me at least i don't know about i i know that joe's probably in like a whole other world as far as ipas go but for me this is like right in the sweet spot of like it's like tropical and like citrusy, but it still has a little hop bite. It's not too hoppy. I know Joe likes just hops, just bitterness, El Chingon, like, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh yeah, it's really hitting the sweet spot for me as far as what I want out of an IPA.
1: Who knows how long we'll be doing these at home episodes, and before if we do them for an extended period of time, we will talk about an El Chingon. I will share those <laughs> with you. Um, but IPAs have gotten so complicated. Um, the IPA world, and of course, IPA, India Pale Ale, known, well known for being extra hopped to survive uh, voyages across the sea. Uh, and the beer wouldn't go bad by extra hopping it that became a style ipa now we've got the pastries and we've got the hazies and we've got and a lot of people just want a good old-fashioned ipa and i think that this brewery home style has i'm sorry bearded iris with their home style has just done it perfectly i i don't when I, at the beginning of the episode when I said it smells grassy, it gets you back to those first IPAs that you tasted before things got, I don't want to say out of hand, because I'm enjoying every, <laughs> uh, I'm enjoying every single variation of the IPA that's coming out. I, I'm no snob, but this just gets you back to the basics, and if you're looking for a good back-to-the-basics IPA, Bearded Iris' home style is exceptional, and I want to thank your doctor, med- medical student friend for making that trek. It's made us and the beer and a movie's audience a little bit wiser and a little bit smarter.
0: Yeah, really. Shouts out to Justin. Been homies me since two thousand six. Massive That's shouts out, Justin. Um, David.
2: Final thoughts I, I, on it. I echo those shouts out. I'm 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 super happy
1: that uh, had the uh, what? No, not, no, no. I, I, that, that was funny.
0: It was it was just funny that the way you phrased I, it.
1: I echo those shouts out, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I do. Uh,
2: it, I, I think that uh, th- this has been one of the, the finest IPAs we've had on the ep- uh, on the the podcast. I'll say top five this year. Right, I don't blame you. I That's blame blame you. You. Praise. <laughs> high praise. High <laughs> praise. We're, we're almost into the uh, what? That we're we're in the second quarter. We're almost we're almost halfway through the year. So yeah, I'm 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 feeling confident now that I can place that. Um, yeah. But we'll see if it stays there. Uh, Anyway, totally uh, wonderful whenever our listeners are uh, thoughtful enough to get us some beer that we might not be able to get our hands on otherwise. Absolutely wonderful. When we come back from the break, we're going to be cracking open another beer and we're going to be talking about uh, another Hitchcock film just made a few years later, sharing a cast member, a really important cast member, and uh, we will uh, hit that after we come back.
0: We are going to kick off this uh, second half of the episode.
2: Um, but can I just complain for a minute? Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah, I, I just, I, I got to throw out there. It, something reminded me of this the other day. I mean, I've done a pretty good job of of, of being indoors, quarantining. I think as, as time goes on, I'm... I'm Probably uh, able to tune out some of those old memories uh, better and better, but something snuck in the other day and made me remember how much I miss going to the movie theater. It it is it's kind of it kills my soul when I think about. This is probably the longest sustained period between times being at the movie theater the last time i went to see a movie in the movie theater i think was the invisible man which we, which we talked about on uh I, episode number what probably 80 or something like that <laughs> just a few back um right at the beginning of march right and uh but then you know shortly thereafter things closed down and you know over a month for me to have not set foot in a movie theater. In my life, since I was probably four years old, this is weird. It it is a weird, weird, and I hit it right on the nose. Joe was telling me eighty was was the number of the episode. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is this is kind of killing me. I don't know how you guys feel.
0: It's it's weird, man. Um, uh, yeah. Kylie and I were talking about it the other day as well, and um, I I hadn't actually I hadn't thought about it in a significant way yet. Like I hadn't been like, man, it's been a long time. What was the last movie that I went and saw? I I think that Kylie and I have just talked about it more in terms of, like, isn't it a bummer that we can't go to the movies? Um, Especially, you know, like we talked about in the first episode, the first time I saw Rear Window was in a theater, like, for a horror movie Monday screening. You know, like, that's amazing that I was able to do that, you know, being that that happened over 60 years after the film came out, you know, and I was able to go see that. And I, I mean, I've been very lucky to be able to see Nightmare on Elm Street in the theater. Um, <laughs> and Nightmare on Elm Street in the theater, I've been able to see Halloween, the original in the theater, Friday the 13th, the original in the theater, a ton of junk. I think the first, not the first time, but maybe the only the second or third time I saw the thing was in a the theater. Um and so I've been able I've been able to have all of these theatrical experiences of movies that would have otherwise been out of my like time frame or whatever. And and then also we're just missing out on other stuff that's supposed to be coming out, like the hunt we weren't able to see in a the theater, and we're probably not gonna be able to see Wonder Woman in a the theater. And God forbid, I mean I hope that Fast Nine comes out in a theater, and that like this is all kind of over before then. Otherwise, I don't know what I'm gonna do. uh Jungle Cruise was supposed to is supposed to come out, and you know probably we'll, we'll still be quarantined. I, it's all very um, troublesome, and uh it is sad not being able to go sit down at the draft house, order a good beer, probably Rebel Toad Angry Man Porter, and get an order of loaded fries and just vibe.
1: I want to say that if you go back, <clears throat> I'm going to clear my throat to episode 79. That's our Jodorowsky episode. Jodorowsky. You, that's what I said. Yo. And you, you guys will recall that on that episode we talked. Uh, our good our guest Josh DeLeon said that Santa Sangre is coming to Alamo Drafthouse. So it did. And we created a beer in the movie Facebook event to get all of the Corpus Christi people together to watch a movie together that you're not <laughs> gonna see in that you're not gonna see in Corpus Christi very often. Yeah, I was you know, actually And we had to cancel that event.
0: I, okay, okay, so I will say David's giving us a like hella crying emoji faces over the Skype call, which I one hundred percent agree with, but you know, being the person that i am i have to give credit where credit's due and this was a joe hilliard initiative like i had never considered i mean we like you said that was episode 79 we had gone almost 80 episodes without ever having conceived of the idea that the people that live in our town could come and watch a movie with us in person
1: well, my point, and you is came
0: that... up with, and you came up with this idea, Joe. Well, that thank you. I'll, we I'll are going the... to create this Facebook event. This is a director that we love. This is a special theater-going experience that we can have. And it was supposed to happen March 24th, and the beer and a movie family was supposed to come together in this one location, at least, at least the local family, and watch this film. But unfortunately it was all canceled and the theaters were shut down and we And weren't as part
1: I I appreciate the compliment and as heartwarming as the, the, your words are I'm not I the people that had already committed to driving down from as far as I'm making this up Las Vegas Nevada <laughs> Got a canceled event because of coronavirus. So it's not just, David, like you're saying, the movies that we're not seeing in the theater today, I'm reading that AMC is likely to file for bankruptcy. Now, American bankruptcy laws will probably keep them in business and the doors won't shut, but you know, Alamo Drafthouse is doing some fantastic uh, at home programming at the Alamo Drafthouse website. Of course, that's our favorite theater. Alamo Drafthouse is the place that brings a, a film like Santa Sangre to our little town. Or Rear Window. Um, oh, exactly. Rear Window, I think. Uh, David, didn't you go see 2001 A Space Odyssey there?
2: Yeah, not too long before theaters closed down. Yeah, that was back in February. Yeah, you're right, right, Joe. It's going to be interesting to see how we come back from this moment. I know there will be theaters, but I think, yeah, there's going to be changes, because like you say, there are even some of the large theater chains, like AMC. People are speculating that they may not bounce back from this, so it may be that we have a lot of the screens in our towns not reopen, initially at least, until others come in and kind of sweep them up. But, you know, my hope is that, that that experience is going to be embraced in a way that it hasn't been for a while because like I said for somebody like me who goes regularly enough I was feeling it probably already a few weeks ago but certainly when I get reminded of it now it, it feels all the more uh, painful, but there's going to be people who even just you know hit the theater once or twice a year. Who you know a couple months from now they're going to feel that it's like they haven't had their summer kick off because they haven't gone to a big uh, blockbuster at the multiplex and had their you know air conditioned uh, popcorn eating experience. And the, you know that's part of film going. Um, but certainly those smaller theaters, all of them that are getting impacted by this. It's I'm, my hope is that we come back in droves when theaters open back up, and we demand to have that experience again because, by God, if, if there's anything in my life that's been a constant, it's been going to the movies as much as I possibly can, and I want to be able to have that experience with other people like I
1: have all my life. Well, allow me to sew this up. Corona canceled our event. We will make a Facebook event for our return to the theater together the communal experience that we you so eloquently, David said we're missing when it is time to go back to the movie theaters at Alamo draft house in Corpus Christi, Texas. And you drive on down here from Nevada. That's fine. New York city. You're welcome. Whenever we're all open for business again, we're going to create the perfect event to have at Our Alamo together with you.
0: Look, I'll say this right now and maybe it won't come to fruition. Maybe it will. But it is my intention, oh shit, that when it is definitive that it is safe to go out in public and gather again together, that I hope that I can facilitate a private screening of a film. Uh-oh. We oh. will I will do whatever I can to for all of us to get together to rent out a theater so that we can all get together. Beer and a movie, fam, for free. Oh shit! And sit and watch a movie all together, and not just like a like a Marvel movie or no no, no. but like a a film that you would not normally get to experience in a theater, and. We will all get to sit together in the 44-seat theater that is Theater 7 and hopefully meet that food and drink minimum so that the cost will
1: be as low as it can be. And we will. We oh, will God, have we will. a beer at a movie party. Oh, my God. David, do something else. Free ponies for everybody. <laughs> no.
2: Nah. I, I, I'm, I'm wholeheartedly behind this idea. I'm not sure the 44-seater is going to do us. But we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. We, we may have to move out of Theater 7 once this happens because I, I think we're going to create an, an event that people are going to want to take part in. But what I want to take part in right now is drinking some beer. And it is going <laughs> into this second half. This is, as we said, uh, uh, well, I don't know if we said this. This is a, a uh, repeat brewery. Um, in fact... We even had, and Joe will have the episode number in just a moment, 57. we had, oh, episode number 57, we had Varian Kreiser as our guest. We talked about his favorite film, The Princess Bride, and we talked about his brewery, Lorelei Brewing, uh, out of Corpus Christi, Texas. We are going to drink their Merdude Variant. This is n- not Varian because that's his name, um, but their variant of their normal merdude, which is, they call it an imperial Russian milk stout. Am, am I right? Is that, is, are those the? Yeah. yeah. And what they've done with this one, as we love, they have added some peanut butter. I mean, Carlos, you were just saying on an episode not too long ago, it might have been our last one, I'm losing track these days, uh, <laughs> that all you've been craving lately is peanut butter and stout.
0: Yeah, I think that was two or three episodes ago I was saying that for some reason the a peanut butter chocolate stout has just really been tickling my fancy lately, and I just haven't been able to think about little else other than that style of beer. Um, and lo and behold, they come with this variant of their Murdude, which we've seen at least one other variant of this beer before, the rum barrel aged Murdude. Um which, you know, I don't think we've talked about the Merdud or that particular variant on the show before, but it is a thing that happened. Um, they had some really well-done commemorative glassware to celebrate the Rum Barrel-aged uh, Murdude. Um, and so now we have here yet another variant, and it's just nice to see that they've got, you know, some Crowlers coming out um, to, you know, kind of help them facilitate. I mean... As far as local breweries go, they're probably in the best position because they do distribute to HEB and things like that. And so you still can access at least their core lineup of beers. Uh, But this is kind of a more special um, kind of limited type of situation um, that you can get in a Crowler. Um, They've got their classic branding on the label, all that kind of stuff. Um, And, You know, as far as a 16-ounce Crowler goes, you're getting 10% with this one. So really, what do you have to complain about at the end of the day? We'll find out. Maybe I have some complaints. Maybe I don't. But 10% is, you know, that's some bang for your buck right there.
1: Speaking of bang for your buck, in 2012, Hitchcock's Vertigo beat Citizen Kane on the comes-out-every-decade sight-and-sound list of the best movies ever made. It eclipsed Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane had held that position for the previous five decades. So we're about to get into what many, many people believe is not only the greatest film that Hitchcock made, although we could probably debate that, but the made the best film of all time. Wait, did you say that this is the best film of all time? According to Sight and Sound Magazine 2012, they update it once a decade That's a lists are so much fun. We make lists from time to time. Our year end is always a list. But this of the of the lists, I put this one in a high esteem.
2: Yeah, it's I I think uh, Joe's right that this was kind of a a celebrated or, or at least a talked about moment in 2012 where Vertigo finally overtook. Citizen Kane as being in the top spot of this sight and sound poll that, you know, sort of looks at all these different. I can't remember. It's like 500 different critics that they they uh, sort of send this out to. And whatever the case is, when they look at, you know, the kind of averaging of those scores, they end up with Vertigo at the top as of 2012. So it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, this, this film and it is one that has clearly over time grown in esteem. Yeah. perhaps the most of any out of Hitchcock's catalog, because when it first came out, it was met with relatively mixed to negative reviews. I mean, people were not bowled over by this film in its time, which maybe we can talk about a little bit as we get into this, wh- why that might be or, or or what our sort of hypotheses are for why, uh, you know, that this maybe wasn't met initially with as much regard as it, as it has co- been met with now. But um, whatever the case is, at this point in time, this is easily recognized as his most celebrated moment of filmmaking. Again, there are others that are that are held in high regard, but this is probably the one that comes up the most on most people's lists where if there's going to be a Hitchcock film that's at the top of all the films ever made, Vertigo is going to show up there.
1: Uh, the, the plot is not simple, but you can simplify it. You've got <laughs> J- Jimmy Stewart back. This is the last time they worked together. Uh, As I have done some research, Jimmy Stewart was not happy with the box office, uh, the initial, as you said, David, box office and critical non-success of Vertigo. But uh, he is a former police detective, John Scotty Ferguson, and he has been forced into early retirement because uh, an incident while he was working caused him to develop not only the fear of heights, but Vertigo, which... um, I guess it's clinically a false sense of rotational movement that makes you feel out of sorts. He's hired by an old friend of his, a private investigator who knows that he is no longer on the force to tail his wife, spinning a interesting story of that. She has been possessed by a, 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 a historical figure in San Francisco, the film where the place where the film takes place, which is actually a character in the movie. If you ask me, um, and then they, they, they fall in love, but she, <laughs> uh, because of his vertigo, he's not able to save her from a, from a suicide. Then he, uh, in a, a deep depression over a woman he's fallen in love with to death, uh, she, he, she is, he's, he spots a woman that looks like her, brunette instead of blonde, and it goes through a transformation, turning this woman that looks uncannily like the uh, woman that has died, into the woman by appearance. And then we learn the rest of the story. It's um a uh, it's it's not my favorite Hitchcock film, but I can see every time I watch it. And I tend to watch this movie once every five years or so, just for some reason. And the occasion of this episode was the reason. I, I, I my love for it deepens much like I think many people's uh, love for it deepens over time. Which is one of the reasons why it's considered one of the best films ever made. Yeah, I mean, I think when you watch a film like this, it, it for me
2: w- watching it the first time, the many years ago that I did, and I don't know that I return to it as regularly as you do, Joe. I'm I, this is probably my third time seeing it if, if I'm going to be th- thinking back to it to how how I've encountered it. Um, it is one that I think. Going back to what I was saying before, how I can understand that this wasn't reacted to critically in the way that maybe we would expect, given the standing that it has now in terms of achievements in filmmaking. It's not a film that follows the regular kind of rhythms of plot that you expect with uh, almost any you know, mainstream film. And to me, in some ways watching it this most recent time, it struck me the most how out of step this probably felt at the time with the way that films are paced, right? We have over half the film spent with this kind of setup that, mm-hmm. that's going on where it, it it kind of feels like something is happening. It feels like we're maybe building towards a certain kind of thing. And, and it does, and it kind of climaxes itself and it, it's almost like the film could end there. I mean, this film could be like a 70-minute film in a certain sense with just that first portion of the story. And then you get to the part that Joe was just talking about where you have him sort of happenstance meet this woman or find this woman who just happens to resemble the one who he had this traumatic experience with before in the, in the earlier part of the film and tries to sort of recreate that scenario. And then you realize, that, you know, I mean, pretty quickly you find out that connect. It's such a weird rhythmically. It's a weird film, I think, from a plotting standpoint. Um, that it stands out. That said, what it's doing in terms of this idea of the male-female relationship, and you know, Scotty here, the Jimmy Stewart character, the way that he connects with Madeline in the in, in the first part of the film, who is played by Kim Novak, who, who's the woman who he's kind of tasked with following. Um, the, the, the love that grows between them, this sort of illicit love, because, again, she's married and, you know, he, he's supposed to just be trailing her. But then he ends up getting involved with her. Um, that has this whole kind of dynamic to it that then once you shift into this other one where he becomes this really obsessed kind of controlling figure in the in the second. I mean, the the third third the of the fifth film. Act. I should say, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> it's. It's pretty weird and intense. We, I actually watched this one. I watched both these films with my daughters. Oh, good, <laughs> good, 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 yeah, good. It, and, you know, it, it was interesting because they were tuned out through a lot of the first half of the film, where it was just kind of like him tailing this Like, they were mildly interested. They were sort of – but then once it got to the point where he is demanding – that this uh, woman who looks like Madeline, right, who who actually is, like, spoilers, sorry, uh-oh, we just did it, right, that this is the woman who he had been tailing, um, but, you know, that was actually sort of hired to play the character by um, by the husband. And, and again, that's where the plot gets maybe a little convoluted, is that essentially you, we come to find out that the woman had been hired to be sort of a stand-in for the wife to sort of put across the evidence for this cockamamie story about her becoming obsessed with this ancestor of hers who had become, you know, uh, who, who herself had been traumatized and kind of reimagined. Through. I mean, it's a weird, weird storyline. But then that last third of the film is him, Scotty, Johnny, Jimmy Stewart, in the most controlling way, trying to batter her. I mean there were several times that my my uh, oldest daughter Adela was saying like he's abusing her he's <laughs> abusing her and and I was and I was like exactly you get it this is I mean it's such a playing out of the male female relationship with the controlling male and again the Carlotta Valdez story which is kind of you know the 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 foundation here is is one of abuse like male abuse of, of women and the control that that men try to exert And I think that's where – what I said in the first half, this film kind of amplifies and ratchets up this male-female dynamic that Hitchcock played around with in so many of his films in a way that it just became almost like – again, like it's almost so loud it's feedbacking. There is an intense, weird situation here, especially if you understand some of Hitchcock's actual um, on-set behaviors and the way that he treated his actresses that sort of – adds this other layer to the film where it is really laying bare this kind of incredibly toxic way that men control women and try to bend them to their wills and and again here we have the the figure of uh um you know kim novak's character who who in the first part of the film we come to know as madeline and then uh later in the film we, we come to know as oh please the name judy is it judy yeah um you know who's the same character but just again you know that, that we're knowing these we, that the, the way that he approaches them and the way that those characters are manipulated by not just him but also the husband in in the first half of the film it's it is a really um sort twisted? of a sorority, s- twisted statement on toxic masculinity and and I'm you know again it, it I know that that's that's something that's probably there on the surface, but as you dig deeper, it just gets more and more um, upsetting.
1: But to a bad degree? I mean, in in other words, are you looking back at a movie and saying, I can't enjoy it for these things? Or did Hitchcock do some kind of goal here? No, this is is what I love
2: about this (laughs) film. This is what I love about this film, is that I think despite himself, this is one of the most um, damning portraits of that kind of uh, masculine control that exists out there. And that's, you know, and again, and I think that's the tension that you feel is like, I think there's the part of him that is that way, that's maybe recognizing that in himself and is putting that on display. But then there's the part that tries to cover it, I mean, ultimately, in the final analysis, Jimmy Stewart, you know, the Scotty character is supposed to be the hero, right? I mean, he finds this all out. And yet the conclusion and this this totally upset my daughters, especially my older daughter. Uh, you know, she throws herself to her death. I mean, she supposedly killed herself before. Well, but she
0: then doesn't she throw really herself.
1: Did... No, I thought she was startled and slipped out the window. Yes, okay. that's
0: my understanding as well, because well, the nun but... appearing out of nowhere is frightening. Fair.
2: No, it's frightening. Any no, any
0: Catholic imagery is often frightening. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I, I like that you said Catholic and not Catholic because of the, the, I, I I was raised Catholic. No but, <laughs> no, but I no, you're absolutely right. But I mean that the the circle is completed there, right? Like this false oh, sure. suicide that happened ultimately results, which is essentially a suicide because she cannot bring herself to tell Scotty before that, that this has happened. Like, imagine if she had just confessed when he found her and you know, they, Oh, I'm sorry. We pulled that shit on you. Why didn't I just say it then? Like, okay, let's, you know, let's make up, let's go for a drink. I'll tell you about it. Like, <laughs> right. No, she, she You know, draws it out, and it's a weird film because again, like, there's lots of questions we could ask. Why the hell would the husband have let her go? I mean, like, why would he have just let her go with all this knowledge that she has, and uh, he gave her a little money? I mean, that's the explanation. It it, it doesn't make sense. Why didn't the cops come up and investigate? What, like, I mean somebody commits suicide out of a bell tower at a, at a mission and nobody goes up to see if there's any evidence up there. Like they would have seen, well, there was a whole, like, there was a whole hearing. The there, there was a hearing, David. No, 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 no. But I'm saying when she jumped, supposedly, uh-huh. nobody went up to the tower because the explanation was they just went over to the corner and kind of hit out. <laughs>
0: it's a, it's it's a, it's a little thin as far as the justification I, is concerned.
1: I hadn't given that any of that thought, but now I will next time I watch it. Thanks a lot.
0: I can't believe I no, but, said Catholic and not Catholic.
1: But you know what, what? Part of what what makes it easy to
2: forgive that is this film is so goddamn like surreal and dreamlike, and and, and so beautiful and beautiful to see. Well, it's beautiful, but like the gauzy, like I mean, there are scenes in this film that are so soft focus, like so you know gauzy filtered uh, imagery that that you're seeing. Like especially, you, I think one of the most prominent is where you have um, when he's recreated Madeline, especially. Yeah. Um, when she comes out of the bathroom, and like really, that central part of the right. image is so yeah. weird and gauzy, and it's it, it, um, what, yeah. bathed
0: in
1: green, bathed yes. in green. Well, it's
0: out of focus almost. Yes, right, yeah. It's yeah. soft focus. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Go, well, I, I think we're to I think we're to imagine that he, and, and it's followed by the kiss this is jimmy stewart having fully realized the woman that he's lost and then it's followed by them kissing and the camera spinning around them you remember that shot I, yeah that is and then everyone's facial expressions as they work through the relationship that they yeah. finally created right. it is it is weird yeah and 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 in 1958 50 years ahead of itself which is why the audience I don't think got it they were seeing something that that challenged them in a way that cinematically they hadn't even been challenged and this is with Hitchcock you know remember I compare Hitchcock a lot to early and, and, and just go with me on this The idea that I'm going to show you something new every single time, a camera trick. I'm going to go back to black and white and kill the heroine in a shower with a knife. You know, like every... He would reinvent himself almost... Not reinvent himself, but audience, you can expect to see something new. That's M. Night Shyamalan at the beginning of his career. Now, it fell apart because... I don't know if you ran out of ideas or the storytelling just uh, the, the the scripts got so bad. I'm thinking of the one where it actually the didn't
0: fall apart at all.
1: It didn't fall apart. Everything is good.
0: M. Night Shyamalan's career after The Sixth Sense is wildly underrated.
1: Oh, Signs, The Village. You're going
0: there. The Village is a really good movie, actually.
1: Yeah. See, I, I, I hey, see we- in that I'm going to I'm going to people were coming to the theaters to have the M. Night Shyamalan experience. OK, then we'll just leave the comparison there. That's what was going on back then. That's what I envy. The idea of of someone seeing Hitchcock as the films came out in the cinema, as they were designed to be. The Vista vision, the creation of a of a IMAXation of film By running the the film uh, horizontally through the screen, you know, tipping the film on its edge. That's where this division comes from, and the idea of we're seeing these as big as we can and as full color as we can. And color in this movie means so much. I just want to. I'll end it by saying that I saw Vertigo on its. I I can't remember 40th, 50th, 60th, 70th like re-release on the big screen while I lived in Houston. That's one of my viewings of Vertigo was as close to the original cinematic experience as you can have. And that's when I kind of like really turned the corner and fell in love with the movie. Because the color, the cinematography, all of it on the big screen as intended is going to give you an experience that we didn't have when we watched this on whatever screen we just watched it on.
0: Okay. Well, you guys have had your, your time. Um, this movie is not as great as everybody says that it is. I will say, um, one of the reasons I will say that is that the synopsis of the film is Alfred Hitchcock's superb thriller about a detective whose fear of heights leaves him unable to stop a woman's suicide. That's the first sentence of the synopsis of the film. That happens an hour and 20 minutes into the movie. That's crazy. That the inciting incident is an hour and 20 minutes into a two- slightly plus hour film it took me three times to give a fuck about what was happening in this movie wow it took me three times i i watched the movie up until i don't know about where um she throws herself into the bay and then i realized i kind of checked out for a little bit in the last part of that so I rewound before that and I started again and then I fell asleep before she you know quote unquote threw herself off the tower and then totally was asleep for the entire last half of the film and then I woke up this morning earlier than I anticipated at about you know seven and was like you know what I've still got like 12 hours left on the rental of this thing. I might as well just try to like start from the middle and watch the second half of it. And it's only past halfway through this movie that it gets even moderately interesting. Like the whole first hour and 20 minutes is a fucking snooze fest. The fact that reading the synopsis going into the film, you already know what's going to happen an hour and 20 minutes into the film, just really leaves me not caring that much about it and it's not that i don't think that it's not well done because there are some very visually striking moments there are some really great technical accomplishments within the film but they're so brief and so fleeting that as far as a narrative is concerned it is difficult to really lock into the movie upon the first viewing I mean, you really have to have just drank a quart of really, really black coffee and have just like a ton of energy to be able to get through that first hour and 20 minutes until things finally start getting remotely interesting. Now, all that being said, having seen it all through to its conclusion, I feel like in a rewatch I could go back and find the first half interesting again because of what I know about the second half but as far as a film being suspense and thrilling and all of those kinds of things it is difficult upon a first viewing of this film to care at all about it
2: this is what I was talking about in the the other uh earlier in the episode where i was talking about how the rhythms of this film are so different that the we get almost an entire feature film out of this film that seems somewhat plodding and pedestrian and not all that interesting and then it's only in that what ends up becoming the final third of the film essentially that things really kind of there's that twist that really pulls it. So I totally get where you're coming from Carlos. I think this is a strange film. Now I think it benefits probably when it was seen or or when it can be seen in a theater because of that because it kind of traps you in there and and you have to go with it, right? Whereas when you're watching it at home, you know, you were talking about being able to stop it and kind of restart it and get, go back. That I, I don't think this is a film that benefits from that kind of viewing situation because y- you are going to get bored with it potentially if you're looking for those regular rhythms.
0: Uh, I, I, I say- hold on, I would 100% agree with you. And I think that seeing it in a theater would be way better than trying to watch it at home uh, where you are afforded the comfort of home and like possibly falling asleep or like whatever. And I also will say that in the 17th act of this film, or whatever the last, like, you know, fucking 40 minutes of it is, (laughs) there are some incredible visual moments in it. Like, when he's, like, having his nightmares and things like that. I mean, like, you get glimpses of it in the beginning in the title sequence. like Oh, it's gorgeous. The title sequence is incredible. And I know I have to... I know it's such a weird thing to fixate on and I've talked about it before as far as John Carpenter and how great his title sequences are, but the title sequence of this film is incredible. Like It, it looks great. It's visually striking and stunning and I can't even imagine seeing this in the theater at the time and those kind of visual elements that are coming at you as it's unfolding. Uh, but then you get even more of it like really, really heavy-handed kind of almost... Borderline psychedelic Visuals as the film Goes on and gets into That last like 30-40 minutes But I've got to say Like as somebody who Knew very little about it going into It and As somebody who was not prepped By like an a third Party or whatever I would venture I would say that anybody Who hasn't seen this movie before That is listening to us talk about it I implore you to prepare yourself for a somewhat underwhelming hour and 15 minutes of movie watching. And I really, really recommend that you try to push through that as best as you can, because as much as I didn't particularly care for the movie watching experience as a whole from front to back, all two hours and 10 minutes of it, I do think that it is worth it to get to the end of it.
1: Um, I have we have talked for a long time and Hitchcock's going to do that but I'm going to keep it as briefly as as I can number one and this is my rebuttal to Carlos's two part kind of shitting on the film (laughs) we probably just heard David the initial audience's reaction to the movie you know that was the thing you queried at the top of this whole thing so there it is But I would say, number two, visually, with filmmaking, with with the height of your filmmaking powers, delivering what obsession is, takes a while. And that's your first hour. What is obsession? And then what is the punchline to obsession? It's the series, David, that you mentioned of him turning her into Madeline and dominating her the way that he had been dominated by this ruse that he didn't know about. And number three, the 40-year-old Carlos is going to love this movie so much. <laughs> David's laughing you really watch hard, it. but he's you on me right now. you got to watch it a couple of times, man. <laughs> it's going to get better and better and better as it goes. Look, there, hey, can I, I mean, tell y'all?
0: Go ahead. There are definitely movies that that has been the case, that – I have been somewhat underwhelmed by them at first and have been, um, you know, uh, encouraged to revisit. Um, I mean, probably the best example and the one that is the most relevant uh, to this podcast in our previous episode. Don't say Disturbia. No, it's Sahara. (laughs) God damn it son of a bit slightly underwhelmed at first but you go back to it and it just keeps giving and giving and giving can we do sahara can we do sahara next episode we can we sh- sure can we'll do sahara let's and do the it. wedding planner
1: Fuck no no hold on hold on <laughs> david 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 let's use a little bit of time to get a perfect companion to sahara and let's do sahara <laughs> let's do it the mummy
2: hey okay, i can I, sent to that but i don't want to rush into it that's what i'm saying i don't i don't okay. want to make set it up for our next episode like we need to find the right situation yeah yeah yeah. 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 Sure, sure, yeah. sure
1: sure 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 um, carlos carlos hold on here we go carlos picks sahara and the two of us pick pick the companion we get to okay, choose together. yeah
0: uh, i mean i, I think, think sahara and think el think topo would have been a good two. one but
1: okay mm-hmm. I, i'd like to tell y'all about how i watched this movie real quick okay my daughter is a I've talked to her about her a couple of times on the show. She loves movies and she has been tolerating prior to corona my tutelage if you will. So her brother who should be in college right now but is home for the rest of the semester and he's studying film. Uh, is he really I, is that what he's doing? Well, he's doing, you know, general media, TV TV radio film. What is uh, so he,
0: uh, uh RTF right i don't know what what, it's called it's
1: yeah i feel like i feel like
0: at college station they call it rtf radio television and film
1: i'll find out um he and i just had a brainstorm one night because we were coming up with interesting movies to watch during all of this stay at home time i said you know what we should do we should create a film class for savannah and savannah's like totally i'll do it so we picked eight movies i'd like to quickly tell you the eight movies that we picked citizen kane because come on uh, uh I, I reached out to David. David, thank you, for a couple of rounding out the eight here. He came up with singing in the rain, which oh, is yeah. perfect. Classic. But uh four hundred blows. I Ooh. had put it on I had thought about it and David suggested it and I was like, done deal. Uh and never then seen David it. also I
0: I, I I Carlos have never seen it. Four hundred blows? Never seen it.
1: Oh, by God, Maybe we might be creating some future episodes here right now. David also suggested – I'm going in chronological order, by the way. I'm up to 1959. A movie – David, talk about this because people are looking for things to watch at home. Good morning.
2: Yeah, th- this is a Japanese film, Yasuhira Ozu, uh, who who is a filmmaker from really the silent era in Japan right up through the 50s. Um, and this is one of his later films. Where it's it 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 is a very mild family kind of comedy in a, in a certain sense, but it really kind of has some interesting insights into. Family and uh, and community life in, in some ways that that I think are really profound and it is just in and, and it has some great fart jokes in it. It's <laughs> it's a really wonderful film that I I'm actually planning on after I recommended it to you I'm gonna watch it with my daughters for sure. Oh, fantastic. Um, so it's definitely one and I feel like if it pulls her in then it will set her up to maybe go back and look at some of his earlier films and and mm-hmm. perhaps even you know some of the other Japanese directors who were who were at the time like. Kura
1: So So, uh, Okay, so real quick. Hunter, my son, said I want to pick the classic horror movie. He picked The Thing by John Carpenter. Uh, We talked about that. Uh, My guy. Exactly. I put Pulp Fiction on there because if I could sit with my 14-year-old daughter and watch it, cover my eyes during the gimp scene, (laughs) I can – It will be okay. And then I also put Lost in Translation on there because she loves Japanese culture and I love Sofia Coppola. But the eighth film, Vertigo. So we watched this together. And she, at the end of the movie, was like, "Eh, it was good. It was good. But here's the thing. In Breakfast the next morning, she said, Dad, that was really good. What's the next Hitchcock film I should watch? so uh, yeah this whole uh, putting it in the context of stay at home and what we're doing at our house and watching movies on purpose purposefully uh, this has been a very good experience
0: it's i mean i i think that at least as far as the hitchcock films that i've seen vertigo is probably the toughest because it is slower and it does have a weird pace as david has said uh, already um but at least for me, like I said, it took me like three attempts to get through the end of it. And having started this morning, as we're recording this on an Easter Sunday, this morning I started it about halfway through and finished the second half of it, I wish that I would have had the patience and probably the sobriety because (laughs) part of my snoozing was alcohol induced Uh, to be able to sit through it. because I do feel like there is a reward at the end of it that, you know, and, and, you know, Hitchcock is not the only filmmaker that is known for this kind of thing. I've talked about it before, but like David Cronenberg is a great example of like a slow burn horror suspense kind of filmmaker where you have to get through some kind of doldrums to get to like the really intense ending that makes it all worthwhile um and there are just some films that are like that you know and for me um the only thing that i would have wished as far as my viewing of vertigo is that somebody had said to me and i'm I know that it sounds like I'm pointing fingers at you, but I'm really not. Um, but I just wish that I had known going into it that it was a slightly unconventionally paced film so that I would have known. Because, like, I was expecting to see the suicide in the first 20 or 30 minutes, you know, based on what I understand of how a film should be paced and when the inciting incident should occur. I was expecting it way sooner than it happened. And so I was getting kind of bored in that first hour. Like, when is this going to happen? What is this? I know that I know someone's going to kill themselves. When is it going to happen? And well, um, well, okay, well, it would have been nice if somebody had been, you know, maybe it would have helped me appreciate the film more. If somebody had been like, Hey, the first hour is going to be kind of slow.
1: Get through it. Okay. Well, so, okay. Fuck it. It's a mega episode. It's what it is. Okay. So the <laughs> second film that we watched with Savannah was Pulp Fiction. And there's that scene in Pulp Fiction, where um, oh god damn it, the character his face goes to red. There's a red screen put on his face. I guess it's John Travolta, and I scream out, "Vertigo, Vertigo, Vertigo!" Because that mm. was a direct, that was a direct um, uh, influence of Vertigo. Oh my yeah we had thank you we had just watched it before the use of color that psychedelic use uh, the opening scene but then the psychedelics within the movie the 1958 audience just was not prepared for it is is what it was and i think carlos I, i made a joke earlier but just watch it watch it again give yourself some time give yourself a year or two watch it again i think you're gonna love it pulp fiction another film that completely bends how we narrate a movie the pace of it psycho we're gonna kill janet lee in the first 10 15 minutes of the movie that's never been done before i i i I mean i i
0: really do totally agree with you um that because you know i will say i mean even though i did find myself like i've said throughout this episode bored in the first hour of the film there were still moments where i was like Visually this is very striking Visually this is very stunning And like I really am enjoying Some of the visual elements of this But because It's just brief moments of it In my first viewing of it I was like wait I'm waiting for something to happen I'm waiting for something to happen And I think now that My And okay I've I've been saying this in general Not just about film But just about life as a whole Really the key to happiness in life is all about expectation management and i think that now that i understand what my expectation should be for this film i think i can go back and watch it again and know exactly what i'm getting into and be able to appreciate the minutia of it in a way that i didn't appreciate it the first time going through i and i also agree that there are some very psychedelic tendencies throughout this film that a 1958 audience would not have been prepared for maybe. it's
1: it's also hard to be the one person that doesn't like a movie on this episode i'll be honest with you i've been in that boat before No, it's
2: all right i, I live for <laughs> well it. And this and this is all pre-psychedelia right i mean yeah, this is exactly. like you, you know this is so i i think it it's a little hard and and joe has made this is a little hard to fully appreciate this in the historical context that it existed in. But um, that's what I was trying to do, actually, as I was watching this again, is thinking about, you know, like had I been and, and I was I was actually putting putting it in these terms for myself, like my dad would have been a freshman or sophomore in high mm. school when this came out for him to have gone down. There was there was a primary movie theater in the town that I grew up in where he grew up that he might have gone down and i have to imagine this played there Yeah, westbrook represent uh mass landing brewery (laughs) hey
1: david i'm david i'm sorry to interrupt was your dad a westbrook dirtbag?
2: oh absolutely
1: okay good go yeah good yeah there's nothing but 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 the
2: idea that he would have gone into a theater potentially and seen this film back in 1958 when it came out it kind of blows my mind. like to think of what that would have been surrounded by and would have been what other films he might have been watching, this would have stood out so distinctly, I think from a lot of those things. And it might have put and it certainly did put people off. But boy, for those those kind of when when you look at those films that really just like kind of rock sense of what a film could do, i I feel like this has to be one of those. It is one of those
0: now. In our discussion of rocking the sense of what a film could do, does this beer, to you, shake the foundation of what a beer can do?
2: Not entirely. Um, <laughs> I like this beer. I, don't get me wrong. No, it's good. The problem the problem is, okay, I, I hate that. I, I've, I've drank plenty of the Merdude over the years, and I've enjoyed it, and I still do enjoy it, and I like this. I've enjoyed drinking this. But peanut butter stouts—that is a tough hill to climb. There are some great peanut butter stouts out there these days, and we've, you know, we've talked about Saloon Door Brewing out of Texas. Their ridiculous AF uh, beer that they have. We, we what is this have beer had, called? This is called Murder AF. So they're they're paying tribute. I, I'd like to think this are is. Are they all, paying
1: tribute? Fun. I think so. Okay. Well, if we're going to give them any benefit of the doubt, they are paying tribute and not completely stealing an idea.
2: Right. Well, and and that's I mean, I I don't look at it that way. I look at it as, hey, there's only so many. I mean, there's so many recipes out there. We use certain styles. I I actually kind of like the fact that they're saying, hey, in Texas, there's this other brewery that does a peanut butter variant of their stout. We're gonna call our. We're gonna add that, you know, AF on there as uh, our sort of modifier to to signal that that's our variant. But but what I was getting back to is that I've had some really good peanut butter stouts over the past couple of years. This is good. This is very drinkable. This is lovely, and I'm pretty re- inebriated from drinking it. <laughs> but I've had versions that have brought the peanut butter into the flavor profile in a more profound way and that's a little bit lacking here i'm getting a hint of it but i'm not getting as much of it as i would like i mean it's it's that peanut butter cup thing right i mean i think in the best version of stouts with peanut butter incorporate incorporated there is a that perfect balance between the peanut butter flavor and the and the chocolatey stout flavor, this one it still tilts more towards the chocolate than I would like it to make it a great peanut butter stout.
0: So so my biggest thing with this beer, um, I so you know David was um, gracious enough that he was going to pick up some some crowlers and asked us if we wanted anything. And I said, yes, I want this Murdud variant that just came out. Can I get two of them? And, you know, thankfully for me, he dropped two off at of my door. So I've had one of these already before the recording of this episode just because I couldn't wait. I'm a very impatient person. And the first Crowler that I drank, I didn't finish. I'll be honest. I was just underwhelmed. Um, I don't care for like i think i i really think my biggest issue is that it's called the murdured af i don't like the af part of it i don't think that that should have been a thing that was done i think it's a very bad marketing idea for you to compare yourself to a perennial peanut butter chocolate stout in the texas craft beer community cuz i feel like at this point the tasty af and the ridiculous af have been around long enough that most Texas craft beer drinkers, which can be a very tight-knit community, it can also be a very expansive community, but they know at this point that if you are looking for a peanut butter chocolate stout, those are the two best versions of it that you can get as far as Texas breweries are concerned. And so to attach that AF to your beer and to compare yourself to that, you are always setting yourself up for disappointment because it is hard to reach that level of what we consider to be the best in that particular style and i still personally think i mean for me as far as texas breweries are concerned tasty af is number one as far as the peanut butter chocolate stout goes ridiculous af is number two and then everything else is kind of just a wish wash of those things like saloon door is really doing it the best that anybody's done it in a while. And it just seems so ill-advised to me to do that and to brand it that way. Like, and yeah, I don't know. I just, I've, I've been critical of their branding of, of, of Lorelei's branding in the past. I think this is just another example of that. And I would just, I don't know, just hope, I would hope for more. I'd hope to have an original take on it because I'm not, you know, I'm not getting a ton of peanut butter. I'm not even getting a ton of chocolate in it. It's like, it's a, I mean, it's identifiable as a merdu, but it's not that much separate from what the merdu normally is. That's not to say it's a bad beer, but it's not a step up from what we're used to the way that a variant like this should be.
1: So I go easy. I go easy on the local beers on this show in a way that I don't go easy on other things. You know that Goodwood barrel bourbon stout that we had yeah. last week. It, it's, it wasn't a good beer. No, and because of the anonymity between me and the great state of um, Kentucky. I, I can say that with fear, with no fears whatsoever. With the local beers, it's hard for me to be critical because I'm so such a champion. I'm a, I'm a cheerleader. I want the local scene to thrive. I don't want them to feel the sting of criticism, but. I don't know. It's maybe not doing them any favors. I, David's being generous here. I don't taste peanut butter or chocolate in this beer. I tasted a deli- I tasted delicious stout. I'm enjoying myself very much. Yeah. But it's, it's not branded properly. And we've talked about this on our podcast many times. Yes. And I'm glad that you brought that up
0: because having had this beer before we recorded the episode, I was thinking very intently about what I was going to say about it. And I, Totally had the same thought that you did that if this was a random brewery who we didn't know that we didn't have experience with that we hadn't had, you know, the founder on the podcast itself, maybe I would be harder on it than I am. But I also think that it's important To not um, sugarcoat things and to not say like, oh, just because we're friends with this person or just because they're local that this is great and it's beyond criticism. Like constructive criticism is important. And I think that I would really like more peanut butter coming through.
2: If anything, I think I would be harder on it if I did not know uh, Varian and Lorelai. I'm being as honest as I am about it. I think it's a very drinkable beer. I'm enjoying it a lot. I'm, sure. D- don't get me wrong. I think I'm nitpicking, if only because I know how good those guys are and what they're capable of. When I drink this, I think it has those hints of peanut butter that I that I would want. I think it could be stronger, but honestly, uh, you know, I don't think I'm being any harder on it or or less hard on it. I think I, I think I'm just kind of, you know, because I know the beer pretty well as it is without the variant. I'm expecting a little more.
0: You know, I think in the past, Lorelei has been um, slightly ahead of the trend uh, as far as styles are concerned within our local beer community. Like, they were one of the first to do a New England IPA. They were definitely the first to do a Brewed Style IPA. And it just feels a little bit like with this one that they're kind of behind. And trying to catch up as far as the stout is concerned and I would like to see more of just their identity as a brewery and what their breweries like and what they want to do creatively um you know we see it a lot with weathered souls like Marcus is really into pastry stouts and so he's always pushing the boundaries of pastry stouts and trying to make them sweet and like have all these kinds of adjuncts and like, that's what he's passionate about. And so that's what we come to expect from that brewery. Same with the Isla street guys. Um, and I want to see that identity form at Lorelei and like, what are they the most interested in? What are they the most passionate about as far as beer? What styles do they want to push forward? Like how, how, What is their, you know, identity other than, you know, just the standard branding that any kind of company is going to have? And I want to see more of that rather than, um, you know, kind of chasing the peanut butter stout pastry stout trend. It's been a great episode. We've talked about one of the most important filmmakers of the 20th century. Have you seen Rear Window, Vertigo? Are these films that you love? Are they films you're indifferent to? Are they films you've never seen? Um, We would love to know what you thought about these films and um – all that kind of good stuff. What you if you've had any of these beers, what you've thought about them. You can find us on Twitter at Beer Movie Show, Instagram at Beer in and Movie, Facebook.com slash Beer and Movie TX. is always Beer and Movie Podcast com is our home base. You can find a link that says listen and you can listen to all of our past episodes, all eighty plus episodes, um, all sorts of different films. Maybe some you've seen, maybe some you want to see, catch up, do your thing. Um we are gonna be holding it down during the quarantine. Um putting out fresh content as often as we can to make sure that we maintain some kind of sense of normalcy and, you know, routine and regularity that we know everybody's kind of, uh, pining for at this point. Um, but one thing I would like to say again, uh, before we get out of here is shouts out to Justin, uh, my boy for like 15 years. Uh, thank you very much for bringing us this beer. Um, it's one that we, as you've heard greatly, greatly enjoyed. Um, also huge shouts out to David for always making sure that the beer in a movie family, AKA me and Joe is taken care of. um, Mm -hmm hooking us up um, and, you know, big shouts out to all of the local breweries that are making sure to maintain their presence in the scene, whether it's through curbside, you know, however it is that they can get their beer to people. It's super important to support all of the locally independent businesses that you can. David?
2: One final thing I have to do and then I'll be free of the past.
0: Until next time.